ago. I still have to turn around and watch and make sure this does what I tell it to do. <coughs> Computers don't obey me very well sometimes, but... Uh, <coughs> George Gaylord Simpson gave a definition for macroevolution. He said that uh, evolution is a fully natural process by which life arose on this planet in the first place and by which it continues to develop both progressively and divergently. It's a lie. It's not just a lie, it's evil. The concept of a godless world coming about by accident with no real spiritual purpose and no eternal destiny is an evil concept. And there is a plot to take away from believers their faith. Satan is at the head of it. And he is the father of this lie. And unfortunately, there are too many religious people that want to compromise with this evil lie. That are no longer convicted about what the Bible says about the matter. It's my hope today that I'm, this is a term, okay? I'm preaching to the choir. I know we don't have choirs. I understand that. Don't, don't, but I'm, it is my hope that I'm preaching to people who understand this. We're still talking about foundational matters here. But I remember a denominational preacher telling me several years ago, oh no, the story about Adam and Eve is not literal. It's not meant to be taken literally. I wonder about the story of their sin. If that was literal, it makes me wonder about the cross. If it was literal. There are too many in the religious world who would rather deny God's word than to be possibly ridiculed by the intelligentsia, mocked by the academics. They would rather fit in than stand out and go along to get along. And I certainly hope that doesn't ever describe us. In John chapter 12 and verse 43, there were some people described there, said, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Turn your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. You may want to keep them open there. Laura pointed out to me that last week in my sermon, of course, I had the PowerPoint and I had the scriptural references up there and I was in a hurry and we were trying to get through something. And I never had you once turn to a scripture. That's not the way I normally do it, okay? <clears throat> and I'm glad she pointed that out to me. One of the things that's important when we gather together is that we all know how to handle our Bibles, whether it's a paper Bible or we're scrolling or whatever we're doing, okay? It's still important that we, we open up our Bibles and look at these things. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read the contrast, the conflicting statement, the contradiction of what George Gaylord Simpson said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the truth of the matter. And as we look at some of the contrast between, 
excuse me, between, I can talk, give me a minute, between Genesis chapter 1 and what is being taught in our world today about origins, I want you to notice that there is no possible reconciliation between these two ideas. Either it's a fully natural process or there's supernatural involved. That's, and it can't be both, folks. It is one or the other. And we need to understand that and we need to stand with that. The fact is, <coughs> when we think about this idea, Something is eternal. How do I know that? Well, because something is here. If something is here, then something has always been here. Unless you believe that something comes from nothing. The fact that something is here means that something is eternal. Something was always here. Matter was not always here. It doesn't take much, and I'm, not, I'm no scientist, I don't pretend to be. I don't have those qualifications, don't really want them. But it doesn't take much knowledge to see that everything in our world is breaking down. That's one of those laws of thermodynamics. All systems tend toward entropy. Everything's breaking down. Everything's moving from the ordered to the chaotic. Matter is not eternal. What's left? Spirit is eternal. Non-matter has always existed. And the something that we see came from something that was not seen. Our invisible God. There we go. A fully natural process by which life arose on this planet in the first place and by which it continues to develop both progressively and divergently denies the concept of intelligent design. Now, two weeks ago we spent our whole sermon on intelligent design. If you weren't here, we had a, we had a little log cabin made of uh, Lincoln logs that was made by accident. And nobody believed that. Why? Because we know that design only can come from a designer. We know that what we see around us cannot be a fully natural process with no intelligent guidance behind it. Come on. Come on. There we go. Can you imagine driving along and seeing that and attributing it to wind and erosion and rain? No sane person would ever do that. The waves and the tides made this sandcastle. There was a crab involved. He carved some of the little designs in there. But he's not intelligent. so Because this didn't come from intelligence. It came about accidentally. I don't mean to be gruesome today, but I do want to give an illustration. If, if a body was found that had been shot, laying near a wall, and on the wall, in blood, was written, John did this. 
not John Phelan. But John did this. A defense attorney, when John was on trial, might be able to argue several things. Maybe the guy that died was, was, was shot. Maybe he was mistaken. So it was a case of mistaken identity. He might be able to argue maybe he had it out for John and he's just trying to get back at him one last time. So it's a false accusation. But can you imagine a defense attorney saying, it's the blood spatter. It just accidentally wrote on the wall, John did this. We know better than that. How can we possibly accept the idea that a fully natural process with nothing supernatural, nothing intelligent behind it, created our world or brought about our world? It is simply not a rational thing. When I read Genesis 1 and verse 1, I see there that which matches our senses without having to be scientists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's take another step here. Remember that George Gaylord Simpson said that uh, we went two that time. We need to go back one. There we go. George Gaylord Simpson said that uh, evolution, macroevolution, is a fully natural process by which life arose on this planet in the first place. Well, if life arose here, where did it come from? Well, if, there were, if it first arose, then it came somehow from non-life. It's called abiogenesis. Life comes from life. We know that. Science no longer believes that rotten meat just automatically produces maggots without flies laying their eggs there. We no longer believe that in science. Why? Because we know that abiogenesis doesn't happen. Life does not come from non-life. The, the most intellectual, the best trained, the, the, the most academic, the, the best uh, theoreticians and laboratory personnel trying to create life in a test tube have never even come close. And don't let, you, don't let them tell you in school that they have. They can't even make the building blocks of life, much less make life. I don't know how many of you will remember this, but uh, Anthony Flew, back in 1976, had a debate with Thomas Warren. And the debate was on the existence of God. It took place in Texas. Uh, Thomas Warren affirmed the proposition, I know there is a God. Anthony Flew affirmed the proposition, I know God does not exist or there is no God. Several decades later, Anthony Flew, one of the most famous atheists in the world, changed his mind. In fact, here's some of his quotes. He says, study of DNA. Remember, 1976 was before that, right? <laughs> when he was not a believer. Now, some decades later, he's saying, study of DNA has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. 
He goes on to say the only satisfactory explanation for the origin of such indirected, self-replicating life as we see on earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. The most famous atheist in the world, arguably. Looking at the evidence said, I have to believe that there was intelligence behind this. Very, very important admission there. I think we just did two again. <clears throat> okay. Let's try that. Look here at Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Down in verse 20, God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Ten times. Down in verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Ten times in this chapter things reproduce after their own kind the whole theory of macroevolution is based on the idea that things can reproduce after a different kind that's, that's the basis of it. That's the idea of it. That life after it arose somehow that we don't understand and cannot replicate, that it continued to progress both, or to develop both progressively and divergently. Meaning that, that one species gave rise to another species. It's a lie. It never happened. Things reproduce after their kind. Look around you. How many of you like to raise a garden? Not that many. I'm, surpri I'm surprised. Wouldn't you love it if you planted peas and you got watermelons? No, you wouldn't love it. We know it doesn't happen that way. Are there mutations within a species that allow for variations? Yes, we have, we have Great Danes and we have Chihuahuas, right? But we don't have dogs giving rise to a different species. Things reproduce after their kind, not after a different kind. This is one of those absolutely irreconcilable differences between the idea of evolution and what the Bible has to say. And we just have to look around to know that the Bible is what's right in the matter. Things reproduce after their kind. Okay. 
Pierre-Paul Grasset says, no matter how many numerous they be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. Stephen Gould, a mutation does not produce major new raw material. You don't make a new species by mutating the species. These are famous evolutionists that I'm quoting from. These are not people trying to defend the Bible. These are people that didn't even believe the Bible. Talking about the fact that mutations cannot produce Gould went on to say that uh, a mutation does, it is not the cause of evolutionary change. Uh, Colin Patterson, he actually wrote the book on evolution. That's kind of a joke because the book he wrote for the British Museum was titled Evolution. Okay? He actually wrote the book on it. And it was requested, because of his credentials, the British Museum requested him to write this book, is my understanding. He wrote it for the museum, called Evolution. He says, no one has ever produced a species by mechanisms of natural selection. No one has ever gotten near it. Variations within a species might help to explain the survival of a species, but they cannot explain the arrival of a species, a new species. It's just not possible. No new species has ever been produced, even with people trying to. No intermediate species has ever been found in the fossil record. This same man, Colin Patterson, that wrote the book on evolution, after he wrote his book and it was published, there was a creationist that wrote to him asking him why in his book he never showed one single photograph of a transitional fossil. I mean, from one species to another. Uh, some fossil that was a transition between species. His reply was, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. Why weren't they there? Because this leader in the concept of evolution, the paleontologist did not know of a single transitionary fossil in the fossil record. Stephen Gould, and I'm going to mention, I don't like big words, okay? But I'm going to mention a couple things here for those of you who do like big words, may want to go look it up. Stephen Gould published years ago what he called it as punctuated equilibria theory. Take the big words out of it. What he was saying is evolution, he still believed in it, but he says it doesn't move gradually. That's why we can't find any transitional fossils. He said it doesn't move gradually, it moves in jumps. So a reptile lays an egg and a bird comes out of it, or, but it moves in jumps. That's the punctuated equilibria theory. I read it. He said if one transitional fossil could be found, it would disprove my theory. This is one of the, and he's dead now, but one of the leading paleontologists in the world. 
saying that there is no such thing as these transitional fossils. Can we have the next one? Watch it change behind me when I don't know it, right? <laughs> okay, let's just leave it as it is. Um, <clears throat> there was actually a cave in Romania that was opened up several years ago, and the interesting thing about it, it had been shut off from the rest of the world, and there were animals that were in it for a long period of time. And they found in this cave some strange creatures. They found some vampire spiders. Uh, they found some scorpions that grew snorkels so that they could breathe underwater. Uh, they found leeches that were able to suck up an earthworm hole like spaghetti, you know, gross kind of stuff. I, I'm not trying to do that to you, but uh, some people jumped on that. Here's proof of evolution. Well, the vampire spiders were still spiders. The scorpions and leeches were still recognizable as scorpions and leeches. This whole concept of a missing link. You know why they call it a missing link? Because it's missing, folks. There's no evidence for it. It's still missing. It will always be missing. And it's important for us to understand. Okay, let's try this one more time. All right. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. You see, the concept of creation is that man was created, actually from the dust of the ground, according to chapter 2, as he expands on that sixth day of creation and expands on the creation of man that happened that day. Man was created from the dust of the ground, formed from the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. The concept of evolution is that man finally arrived on the scene being born from some non-man. Non-woman, actually, but... Where did the first man and first woman come from under the evolutionary concept? From something that wasn't a man, wasn't a woman. This is absolutely irreconcilable with the Bible account. Man was created. He was not born. The first man and the first woman were not born. They were created. And that brings us to a talk about the age of the earth. 
George Gaylord Simpson and others would date the earth in billions of years. They would say that man is a Johnny-come-lately on the earth. That, uh, in fact, one man, when I was a teenager, said this. He said, uh, I have a 100-foot tape measure at my house. He said, if we let that represent the, the age of the earth, the time of... And this was a, supposedly a Christian man uh, lecturing to Christian people. He said, the time that man has been on the earth would be represented by less than one inch. That's not what my Bible says, folks. My Bible says that man was created to be the dominant species here on the earth. That all of this was made for us. That we were supposed to have authority over it. The Bible dates the earth in thousands of years. Somebody say, says, well, the Bible's not a science book and it doesn't give an exact age. Okay. It certainly tells us beyond doubt that it is not billions of years old. The passage that Daniel read to us just a little bit ago. Remember who's speaking. This is God Himself. If you doubt it, if you want to argue with it, you're arguing with God Himself. He's speaking from the mountain. And he says to these Jewish people, you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You work six days, you don't work on the seventh day. You don't work, your servant doesn't work, your beast doesn't work. You don't work on the seventh day. This was a sign that the Jewish nation belonged to God. That's what it was for. And God said, because in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now you can try all the things you want to, to get more time into Genesis chapter 1. You can think of a day-age theory. You can put a gap between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. You can try all of that. God said He did it in six days. If that doesn't mean that He did it in six days, then the Sabbath law had absolutely no meaning for the Jews. They could have gone their whole life and never observed the Sabbath and yet not violated that law. If they said that a day was just a long period of time, some eon or something. No. It doesn't work that way. Let's turn to some other scriptures here. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. This is when the Pharisees came tempting Jesus and asking him about divorce. We're not going to get into the issue of divorce today. That's for another time. But here's his response in verse 4. He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Them who? He's not talking about the moon and the, the sun. He's talking about people. And he made them when? At the beginning. He didn't make them billions of years later, millions of years later. He made them at the beginning. That fits with the account in Genesis. It doesn't fit with the evolutionary concept. And it certainly doesn't fit with the old age earth theory. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1. Wow. 
Verse 20 is where we're going, but to get this, we're going to have to start in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Remember that word men there. Okay? That's what he's talking about is men. He says in verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. In them who? In, in these men. To these men. For God hath shown it unto them. Who? Men. Men and women. That's what he's talking about. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. By whom? Being understood by the things that are made. Who saw them? Who understood them? Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they, they who? Men and women are without excuse. That word from there, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. Uh, in the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the American Standard of 1901, the English Standard Version, I believe all of those translate that word since. Since the creation of the world, men have been around to observe what God created and have faith produced by the things that God created since the creation of the world. It is not something that happened later. It cannot be something that happened later. So let's talk about what the real problem with dating our earth is. And you've heard this, I'm sure. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it already over time. And yes, I do watch. But uh, sometimes you just have things that need to be said. How old did Adam look on the seventh day? look on the seventh day. If you were to cut down one of the trees in the Garden of Eden, would it have rings? We have no idea what an old earth would look like. But if God created our earth just like he created everything else, it would have the appearance of age. This idea of apparent age. Somebody says, well, there's a galaxy. Galaxy Abel 1835IR1916 that is supposedly about 13.2 billion light years from the Earth. So it must have taken 13.2 billion years for that light to get here from there, right? Can God not create that light shining on the earth? Somebody says, well, well, if God did that, though, then he would be deceiving us into thinking that the world is old when it's not. He told us exactly what he did. In six days, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. In six, he told us. How can that possibly be deceitful? And my question is, why is this hard? We talked two weeks ago about this test of faith. About faith having to be a conviction that will stand in difficult times, during pandemics, during loss of job, and even more importantly, during times of persecution, when people are mocking us, when people are being imprisoned for believing the truth. 
we need that kind of faith. We need the, the kind of faith that is a conviction that will stand no matter what the opposition is. Here's a test of that. We're going to believe what God says or what man says. There is no linguistic reason, there is no logical reason reading the scriptures to assume that our earth is any more than a few thousand years old. There is no reason to read Genesis chapter 1 as an allegory or a creation myth, and to do so is a dangerous thing. Now somebody's going to say, does it really matter, Rusty? Do we all have to believe the same thing in this? Well, I want to be very careful in how I answer this because people can be confused about a lot of things and can be in the process of learning and studying and still be all right with God. I understand that. But it is a very, very dangerous thing to deny the Scripture. It is a very dangerous thing to accept any method of interpreting the Scripture that simply turns it into an allegory or denies what it actually says. That makes it figurative just upon a whim. Let me ask you a couple of questions here. If Genesis chapter 1 is figurative in its description of the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day, if that's figurative, what about what Jesus said about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19.9? If Matthew 19.4 is figurative, and he didn't really make man at the beginning, as Jesus said, then what about Matthew 19.9? Can't we just take that as figurative? What about Jesus' statement in Mark 16.16? 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Can we just take that as figurative? Say, oh, Rusty, no one would do that. When I was in high school, I was studying with one of my fellow... Uh, I was in the high school choir and one of the fellow uh, guys in the choir studying with him and we got to talking about baptism and the essentiality of baptism for salvation. And he said, you see, people back when, when the Bible was written, they were more physically minded and they had need of some physical physical act to show them what salvation was and that's why that was commanded. He said, but I'm, I'm spiritually minded. I don't need it. It is a very dangerous method of interpretation. Turn your Bibles. One last scripture. Acts chapter 5. You talk about a time of testing. You talk about a time when, when they had to have true conviction. When faith had to be not just a, a godly guess or a holy hunch, but an absolute, I know this is what's true. Here they were called before the Sanhedrin council. It's kind of almost funny in, in chapter 4. Is it chapter 4 or chapter 5? He said, uh, uh, If we this day be judged of the deed we did, the good deed that we did to the lame man. That's kind of funny because he says, Here you are calling us into judgment because we, we healed somebody. <laughs> we did something good. But they know they're in trouble here. This is the same council that just had Jesus killed. They are in a very serious situation here. 
Verse 28 of Acts chapter 5, the council said, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Behold, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There's a real ironic statement from people who were just shouting not too long before, His blood be on us and our children to get Him crucified. He said, Now you intend to bring His blood on us. But look at verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. We need a faith that will help us to do that when the, when the rubber meets the road, when, the, when crunch time comes. We need a faith that will stand, that will not crumple, that is absolute assurance and conviction. We need that. And brethren, how can we possibly say we ought to obey God rather than man if we're not even to a point where we say we believe God rather than man? If we don't believe God rather than man, we will never get to the point where we can confidently stand and say we ought to obey God rather than man. Yes, this is indeed an extremely, extremely important matter. This, that's why I wanted to flip this one last time, this is my father's world. You can say amen anytime you want to. This, this is my father's world. Remember I was preaching up in Sealands Grove. I'm, I'm departing here. And yes, I am watching the time. But <clears throat> I said something to that congregation that they were kind of stuffy. And Dottie Delbaugh corrected me later. She pulled me aside later. Always a very gracious woman. She said, we're not stuffy, we're stoic. <laughs> well, you may be stoic here, I don't know. But there's some things we just need to say amen to. This is my Father's world. He created it. It is His by His power. He created it without anything to make it of. Without a hammer or nail or screw or anything to nail it to. He simply spoke. And the story's true. This world came boldly in the view. There's where our confidence should be. There's our assurance. It may be that you're not a Christian today. Understand that this book is truth. And it teaches us not only about our origins, but about our nature, about our violation of God's law, and about our eternal destiny. You can be a Christian, believing in Jesus as the Son of God, who died for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. You can be a Christian. You can turn from your sins. This is part of that process of becoming a Christian. Repent of your sins, Luke 13 and verse 3. You can confess your faith in Christ, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. You can be baptized into Jesus, raised to walk in newness of life, your sins washed away by His blood. I know all of those things are true. It's based on the foundation that we're laying here. This is my Father's world. And this is the message He has communicated with us. If you haven't been baptized into Jesus, we urge you, we plead with you. We would love, we would rejoice like the, the angels in heaven would rejoice to see you put on Christ in baptism today.
Christian people, we need to be convicted. We need to not be ashamed or afraid. We need to stand strong and not compromise the truth of God's Word. We need to believe God rather than man. And we need to obey God rather than man. If you failed in that, if you've left the church and need to come back, if you've sinned in some public way so that we can know of your repentance, come let us know so we can rejoice with you, pray with you. Whatever your need is, won't you come as we stand and sing?